Baruch Hashem. So, this is the last parasha of Pekude, and the last episode, if you will, the last teaching of, on the Megillah Esther, Baruch Hashem. We are concluding the book of Esther, and I pray that this has been an enlightening uh, experience for you to go through the Megillah and to learn about uh, de- deeper things about uh, Purim and Esther, the meaning of the holiday, everything that goes along with that. Baruch Hashem. So, <clears throat> with that information and moving forward, we are going to say our baraka and get right into the study today as we're concluding this out. As soon as I find the blessing, which is eluding me at the moment. There it is. Rakot HaTorah. Blessed are you, Adonai, God, King of the universe, who has sanctified us with His commandments and commanded us to engross ourselves in the words of Torah. Please, Adonai, God, sweeten the words of your Torah in our mouth and the mouth of your people, the house of Israel. May we and our offspring and our offspring's offspring and the offspring of your people, the house of Israel, all of us know your name and study for your Torah for its own sake. Blessed are you, Adonai, who teaches Torah to his people, Israel. Amen. Amen. And the blessing before the reading of the Megillah. Turn there right quick. We're about to read from the Megillah, the scroll. Baruch atah Adonai, Eloheinu melech haolam, asher kidshanu b'mitzatah v'tzivanu al-mikra Megillah. Amen. We would turn in the Megillah of Esther to the book, uh, to the ninth chapter, rather. And we'll begin reading in the 19th verse and take us to the conclusion of the Megillah. So it says, Says that is why Jewish villagers who live in unwalled towns celebrate the 14th day of the month of Adar as an occasion of gladness and feasting for holiday making and for sending delicacies to one another. Mordecai recorded these events and sent letters to all the Jews throughout the provinces of King Ahasuerus, near and far, charging them that they should observe annually the 14th and 15th day of Adar. As the days on which the Jews gained relief from their enemies and the month which had been transformed for them from one of sorrow to gladness and from mourning to festivity. Notice it says Adar had been transformed from a month of sorrow to a month of gladness. That's why Adar is a a month of gladness, a month of mourning to a month of festivity. Adar is the month in which God does that for us. He transforms those things that seem to be negative and to become positive. They were to observe them as days of feasting and gladness and for sending delicacies to one another and gifts to the poor. The Jews undertook to continue the practice they had begun just as Mordecai had prescribed to them. Another key phrase, the Jews undertook to continue the practice. Remember that Purim is all about receiving the Torah anew and afresh, and this time receiving it not under any type of uh, obligation or requirement, but receiving it uh, free, by free will. We openly receive it. And as, uh, as Mikael was saying, remember that Esther is a type of Mashiach. She's the type of Mashiach. So when Mashiach comes to lead us into Torah observance, he leads us into accepting the Torah with 
with our own free will, with our own joy, right? So it says here, the Jews undertook. There's a statement in the, uh, in the commentaries that Mordecai and Esther did not have the authority to force upon the Jews a festival. And so it says here, the Jews undertook to continue the practice they had begun. Meaning that every time that we choose to celebrate Purim, we are choosing to rededicate our life to God and to Torah. We're choosing to accept he who is hidden, he who has been concealed to be revealed. Conversely, if we choose to ignore Purim because we don't believe it's valid or whatever, we're conversely breaking the chain of Teshuvah, ultimately. Because remember, Purim is likened to what? Yom Kippur. So to not celebrate Purim is to not celebrate the atonement. You know, at the Arab table, I asked my family, I said, what a, tell me something that you think you learned from this Megillah that you, you know, really stuck out to you. And there was answers around the table, good answers. My answer was that I always have loved Purim, and it's because I like to dress in costume, and I like the fun of it all, and... and uh, all year long, I'm mundane and sulking, and that's the one holiday where I can be funny and witty. <laughs> and so I've always liked it, but I've always felt a little bit guilty in liking it because you ask somebody who's holy, what's your favorite holiday? They'll say Yom Kippur. And other Zadakim say things like Pesach and Shavuot. And me come around to a rabbi, like, what's your favorite holiday? Puim, you heathen? What's wrong with you? When did you get righteous in your life? And so uh, now I feel better because now the holiday that I like so much is the one that will last forever. Why? Because it's like Yom Kippur. So there. <laughs> no, just kidding. <laughs> says, for Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agites, enemy of all the Jews, had plotted to destroy the Jews and had cast a poor, that is, the lot, to terrify and destroy them. But when she appeared before the king, he commanded by means of letters that the wicked scheme which Haman had devised against the Jews should recoil on its own head, and they hanged him and his sons on the gallows. That is why they call these days Purim, for the word poor. Therefore, because of all that was written in this letter and because of what they had experienced and what had happened to them, the Jews confirmed and undertook upon themselves and their posterity and upon all who might join them to observe these two days without fail in the manner prescribed at the proper time of year. Now, there was another comment I just want to throw in here. There was another comment about how it, the reason that letters were sent out everywhere to all the known world, basically, even to Jews... They were in other provinces that, did, that were not under the threat of Haman. Like Haman didn't really have the authority to come over to their uh, town in Bulgaria or wherever and harm them. But yet they were still to celebrate Purim. Why? Because Shushan had become, for all intents and purposes, God had transformed it into a Jewish city. Why? Because now you have a Jewish woman as queen... Her husband is like, whatever you want, honey, I'll do it. That was the first, that's where I started. 
Because he started out by whatever I want, we're going to make an edict. Whatever the man wants, the woman should do. At the end of the story, is whatever the woman wants. So, so then all these Jewish people were saved, of course. And then all the converts came in. Now, I'm just going to ask you a question, a quicken. Isn't that a picture of what God wants? If he's working behind the scenes to do things, and all the non-Jews become Jews, isn't that the picture we're looking for? Yes, of course it is. So if that's the picture we're looking for, then why do we discourage non-Jews from becoming Jews today? I'm just asking. If God's heart is to turn the city Jewish, why are we just keep trying to keep our block Jewish? I'm just asking. Just a curious question. Why are we trying to prevent people from doing mitzvot when God's heart is that everybody would do the mitzvot, ultimately. Why are we delaying the redemption? Why are we delaying the messianic times? True messianic times are everybody in keeping Torah, Jewishly, not Torah Gentilishly. But keeping it Jew, that's messianic times. That's Megillah times. Why are we preventing it? Why are we delaying it? If not now, when? Right? If we know that's God's heart, why not start now? Why do we have to wait till we all die? Why do we have to wait till Armageddon? Really? Why do we have to wait till we're forced to do it? See, the reality is, you're, I'm, I'm talking to the uh, Levitical choir here, but at, at some point, everybody's going to be forced to do it. Why not choose? God likes a cheerful giver, right? A cheerful giver. Everybody needs to be giving and giving cheerfully. Where was I? 29, I think. Queen Esther, daughter of Abihel and Mordecai, the Jew, wrote with full authority to ratify the second letter of poem. Oh, I know what I was going to say. I forgot something. So even the lands, even the cities that weren't affected by Haman were also instructed to keep poem. Why? Because as a remembrance of the redemption, in other words, this can happen and should happen in your city. Your city should become like Shushan. You say, well, Haman never had anything to do with me. That's why when people say, well, why do we celebrate Hanukkah? That was something that happened to the Jews in Israel. God's like, what? I'm not your God. What? What I did for them. You know what I'm saying? That's the whole the compartmentalizing. You do that for that group. That's identity politics and theology. The Queen Esther, daughter of Abihel, the Mordecai the Jew, wrote with full authority to ratify the second letter of poem. Dispatches were sent to all the Jews to the 127 province of the king of Hasaris with words of peace and truth to establish these days of poem on the proper dates just as Mordecai the Jew and Queen Esther had enjoined them, and as they had undertook upon themselves and their posterity the matter of the fast and their laments. Esther's ordinance validated these regulations for poem, and it was recorded in the book. Esther's ordinance validated, say validated. validated, validated these regulations for poem, and it was recorded in the book. King Ahasuerus levied taxes on both the mainland and the islands and all his mighty and powerful acts, and a full account of the greatness of Mordecai 
whom the king had promoted and recorded in the book of Chronicles of the kings of Media and Persia. For Mordecai the Jew was viceroy to King Ahasuerus and was a great man. Sound like Yosef, right? And was a great man among the Jews and found favor with the multitude of his brethren. He sought the good of his people and was concerned for the welfare of all his posterity. Amen. I want to uh, share something from the Midrash Rabbah to, to the uh, Megillah here that was part of our Left Behind series. It didn't get called up. Something, just a few points about Mordecai. We talked about Esther being like Mashiach, but Mordecai has, uh, is like the Mashiach as well. It refers to Mordecai as a shepherd and how he protected the flock of Israel. And so there's a statement here from Midrash Shabbat. It says, The Emperor Hadrian said to Rabbi Yehoshua, Great is the sheep, Israel, that survives among 70 wolves, that is the nations of the world. Okay. i just like to take opportunities to talk about the Messianic Gentile concept and the Noahide concept. Those two concepts don't survive when you study Jewish literature because it says great is the sheep, that is Israel, that survive among the 70 wolves, that is the nations. So if you are not Israel, then you're a wolf because you can't have the sheep you can't have a wolf in the sheep pen because that would be a wolf in sheep's clothing. Am I right or am I right? Or am I right? I'm just saying. Yes. All right. Uh, so he said, he replied to him, still greater is the shepherd who rescues the sheep and destroys. Say destroys. destroys. That means there's no more wolves even the ones that are in sheep's clothing. He destroys the wolves before them, as it is written. Any weapon sharpened against you will not succeed. This is the heritage of the servants of Hashem, and their righteousness is from me. This is the word of God from Isaiah fifty-four seventeen. Now, with that said, I want to turn to the book of John chapter 10. Book of John, Book of Yochanan, chapter 10. We just got, just got through reading that um, God is the shepherd, right? And He's the one who's going to destroy the sheep. All right? So we don't believe in a divine Messiah, right? Amen, amen. I say to you, anyone who does not enter the sheepfold through the gate, who's the gate? Mashiach. What is he entering in? The sheepfold. Anyone who does not enter into the sheepfold through the gate but climbs in another way is a thief and a robber. Do you think the shepherd is going to let a, a, a wolf in sheep's clothing in? Anyway, he says the one who enters through the gate is the shepherd of the flock. The guard will open the door for him and the sheep will hear his voice. He will call his sheep by name and bring them out. After he brings out his flock, he will pass ahead of them with the flock following him because they know his voice. <clears throat> and another um, Aliyah spoke about how every Jew knows the voice at Mount Sinai. Why? Because you were there. It says they will not follow a stranger. Rather, they will flee from his presence because they do not know the voice of strangers. 
So it says here that Yeshua is the shepherd. The Mashiach is the shepherd. Yeshua spoke this parable in their ears. They did not know what the word he was speaking about. He says, once more, Yeshua spoke to them, Amen, Amen, I say to you, I am the entrance of the flock. All who come before me are, are thieves and robbers, and the flock did not listen to their voice. I am the entrance. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved. And when he goes out or comes in, he will find pasture. The thief does not enter except to steal, to kill, and to destroy. But I've come to bring life and the fullness of their sufficiency. I am the good shepherd, he says. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the flock. The hired worker, worker is not the shepherd, and the flock, it's not his flock. He will see that the wolf has come and abandon the flock and flee. Then the wolf will snatch and scatter the flock. What does that mean? The wolf will, will snatch and scatter the flock. We just learned that the wolf is the nations. It's the Gentile. The wolf is the Gentile. What happens when you let the wolf into the, into the pen? The Gentile snaps up the sheep. It starts getting the sheep to not keep Torah, break Torah. Let me just say something right here that's going to be potentially offensive. I hate when I do this. But, you know, you just have to say stuff sometimes. Moshe Timbins once wrote a little post, and he said, why is it that the one new man always looks like a Gentile? No, look, you have one new man, right? That's the concept. Jew and Gentile, one and Messiah. Why is he always a Gentile? How come, it, how come the Gentile doesn't become the Jew? Why is it that when you have a congregation where we believe in Jew and Gentile, Messianic Gentiles and, and Messianic Jews coming together, why is it always uh, Torah light, if anything? I'm, a lot of times it's Torah nothing, but some, a lot of times it's Torah light. But why is that? Because when you let the wolf in, when you let the spirit of the nations in, naturally the spirit of the nations is opposed to Torah observance. That's what you have to understand. The Gentile soul, just hear me out. I'm not talking about individual people. I'm not talking about individual people, okay? I'm talking about the Gentile soul. The Gentile soul that's inherent in the nations is antithetical to Torah observance. All you have to do is look outside and know that's true. I'm not talking about people. Don't, don't misunderstand me because you're saying, oh my gosh, Rabbi hates non-Jews. I want you to come in but I want you to transform from a wolf to a sheep. <laughs> I don't want you to be like this with a sheep thing on you. And what that really is, is, is on the outside you've got the clothing, but on the inside you're really antithetical to it. Right? It's like the person who is against rabbinical Judaism and against halakha and doesn't believe that it has authority, and yet you see pictures of them online in their, in their congregations wearing a kippah and talit, gadol. Let me say that again. You, you have people who say, I'm against the rabbinical Judaism, I'm against halakha, it doesn't have any authority today, we're under a new law or whatever, and, you, and their, their, their profile pic is them wearing a kippah and a talit, gadol. 
Now, in case you're wondering, okay. Well, the people that gave us the Talit and the Talit and the Kippah are the rabbis. Yeah. Right? So you're wearing their gear, but you're not. See, my problem is I was always into authenticity. That's my deal. That's my problem. My problem is, is that I always wanted what was real. So is my wife. She don't want a ZZ. She wants a diamond. She wants the emerald. Say it with me, sapphire. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> I mean, yeah, got to get it real. So you just got this. So you just have to ask yourself the question. This is this is what I'm talking about. The spirit of the wolf wants to destroy, wants to come in and say, "Why? Come on, cheeseburger. It's not so bad. To eat it. Come on. No, no, no. I've I know it's Shabbat, but man, if I don't go that that sale is only today. Okay, right? No. Why'd you Why'd you stop and get a Coke at Water a Waterburger on Shabbat? <clears throat> I was thirsty, died of thirst. My ox was in the ditch. Wow. Rabbi, you don't got no love, Rabbi. You know what I'm saying? Because a lot of times you can either be loving and caring and kind and sweet and generous or Torah observant, but you can't be both. That's the mentality out there. It's a lie. Mordecai was the king of the Jews. Yeah. It says here in Midrash Rabbah Esther 10:12, Mordecai left the king's present clad in royal apparel. Rabbi Pinchas said Mordecai was king over the Jews. He was king of the Jews. Just as a king wears a purple cloak, they, they gambled for his what? So did Mordecai wear a purple cloak. It says here, Mordecai... On one side, I'm sorry, uh, it says, For he, Mordecai, was a good man. He was a man of shalom and a seeker of shalom. Wasn't Yeshua the prince of shalom? I'm just saying there's, there's coordinations here, or, or correlations, I should say, uh, that we have to pay attention to. Now, getting back to um, our topic, what's well, all on topic. You have to forgive me. I've been ill, so I'm a little loopy. Esther chapter 9 and verse 20. It says that Purim was established as a holiday. It's in the Bible. <clears throat> By the way, who gave us the Bible? That Bible that you held in your hand. I'm sorry, I didn't hear you. Rabbis, the men of the great assembly. The rabbis. I just want to point that out because people don't realize that. That the ones who said that that all those books and the prophets and all those books and the writings were legitimate books. They were scripture. You're like, that's word of God. Who told you that? Who told you Isaiah was scripture? Who told you Jeremiah was scripture? Who told you Esther was scripture? Who told you that Psalms was from the hand of God? Who told you that? The men of the great assembly. 
otherwise known as the rabbis, later known as the Pharisees. Today we know them as Jews. That's who told you that. So if you're anti-rabbi, then you need to, you're going to have to go back to basics and figure out which book is legit. Got to figure that out. If you accept their version, then you got a problem. Because if they're right about this, they might be right about other things. Woo! You see what I did there? Ah. Uh. No, no. Take it to the mat. It says here, it was Mordecai's aim to firmly establish Purim as a festival so that the Jews would never forget the miracle. He therefore ordained that the Megillah be read annually and that the observance take place in the 14th of Adar in the unwalled cities and the 15th in the walled cities. He was established that it, he also established rather that there need not be a secession from from Malacha, that is work on the festival. This is according to Rav Galico. It says, The festival of Purim, according to Talmud Yerushalayim Megillah 1.4, the festival of Purim will never be abolished even in the days of Mashiach. That's how important this festival is. I believe that one of the reasons this festival is so important, aside from everything we talked about with the acceptance of the Torah and so on, is because it, com it continually reminds us not to forget that God is working behind the scenes. God is working behind the scenes. And that is a message that we so often forget. We don't realize what's going on. We, we, just, we, we think that, that life just comes at us. We've got to roll with the punches and it's fate or whatever. And that's not true. Everybody who's here, everybody who's listening to me, every single one of us, are here for a divine purpose, a divine reason. And uh, everything that happens to us in life, God is working behind the scenes. And that's the real message. And I believe that's why this, this festival will last forever, because that truth is forever. Everything else, everything out there is an illusion, so to speak, because everything is operated by God. One of the greatest truths that you can imagine is that it's God, literally, who causes your grass to grow in your front yard, which is happening now. It's God who causes that. You say, well, it's nature. Yeah, of course. But God is the, is the fuel to the nature. It's like the electric car. I want an electric car. Why? Because I don't want to buy gas. I want to save the world. Great. So you drive your electric car... You pull up to an electric stand, you plug it in, and it gets uh, electrified. Five hours later, you can go 10 miles <laughs> at 30 miles an hour. And you're plugging it in, and you're like, oh, look, no gas. I'm saving on energy. It's amazing. Saving the world. Wonderful. Where's the electricity come from? The big coal factory. What? Yeah, it doesn't. What do you think? Electricity just manifests? Like you conjure somebody in the, behind the thing conjuring it up. Oh, electricity, come. <laughs> Actually, you're causing... Well. <laughs> Speaking of cars. 
Why do we celebrate? It says in verse 22, as the days on which the Jews gain relief. The celebration was not to commemorate the downfall of our enemies. This is important. The celebration was not to commemorate the downfall of our enemies. We do not celebrate the destruction of the wicked. We do not celebrate when we get, you know, when we're victorious over our enemies. It is written, being full of el tishma. Rejoice not at the downfall of your enemies, Proverbs 24, 17. Rather, the celebration is in commemoration of the redemption and the salvation of the Jews. This is the intent of the days on which the Jews gain relief. That statement. For this reason, the celebration is made not on the day of victory, but on the day of relief. That's what Ma'am Loez writes. That we actually are celebrating the redemption. This is why we've got to be careful that we don't, we've constantly, and it's a struggle not to dislike the sinner, you know, the old statement, hate the sin, not the sinner. We've got to be careful that we don't look forward to Armageddon when the, when the world is going to get theirs. You know, sometimes I think we, we look forward to that. You think about it, if you, if you, if you, if you listen or, or read or whatever, some end time prophecy stuff that goes around, it's like people are, and they're like waiting with bated breath until all the valley gets filled up with blood. What? I would rather the valley be full up with dry bones that came to life and flesh upon them because they heard Torah. So why do we have food, drink, and frivolity and those kind of things? Let's, Ma'am Louise, let's look at what he says. This is the reason for the season. Now, I use that on purpose because we're about to learn something about Purim. You know, the enemy, he, the enemy can't create anything. He only mimics stuff. He just mimics stuff. He takes God's stuff and he, he perverts it, anything, from family relations all the way to <clears throat> festivals. He just likes to pervert things. So all the alternative festivals... The reason that we don't celebrate is like, oh, you're such a prude. Why can't we celebrate? Look, it's so fun. The reason we don't is because that is something that the enemy has concocted to mimic God's thing. And, and at the very least, we don't want what's fake. Why do you want the fake? Why do you want the plastic sapphire necklace when God wants to give you the real necklace? Right? We, all, we like to hold on to plastic. Phony baloney, plastic banana, good time rock and roll. We like that kind of stuff. Instead of taking what God has for us for real. It says the Jews realized that they had emerged from mourning to festivity. The seventh of Adar was the day on which Moshe had died, and his seven days of mourning had ended on the 13th. From the period of mourning for Moshe, the Jews would now emerge into a time of unparalleled festivity. <clears throat> See, it all goes back that uh, Haman thought that this would be a good month because this is the month in which the Redeemer died. And they didn't realize that the death of the Redeemer actually led to festivity. You hear what I just said? The death of the Redeemer actually led to salvation. The death of the Redeemer actually led to a celebration of redemption. 
says, normally no good comes from overindulgence in food and drink, but now since the Jews had already begun the celebration of Purim with feasting and drinking, Mordecai could not substitute a different form of celebration. Unless eating and drinking were, were an integral part of the celebration, it would not fully commemorate the miracle. But Mordecai in the great assembly, Mordecai was a member of the great assembly. Did you know that? None of, so actually Mordecai is partly responsible for giving you this. Think about that. It says, they legislated that this feasting should be accompanied by other observance, such as the reading of the Megiddo. Wow, okay, so this, this is the mi mindset of the sages. We don't want to just feast for feasting's sake. It has to be coupled with a righteous purpose. Do Jews drink? Yes, they do. When do they drink? At holy holidays. Jews don't typically go to the club. They go other play, They go to holidays and those kind of things. So here, the feasting has to be accompanied by the Megillah the Megilla reading, Torah study, sending portions to one's friends and gifts to the poor. Now I want you to see the contrast. When do Jews actually give gifts? We give gifts at Hanukkah to our family and so on. But, but the actual gift-giving spirit is, for Judaism is at Purim time. Now I want you to see the contrast. We dress up in costume because God was disguised. Esther was disguised. We also, the sages point out that Jacob disguised himself. So the real are actually in costume mimicking God mimicking his essence and when we go to people we don't say trick-or-treat at shalloween you dress up like a demon so that you you become like a demon you oh shalloween is all about assimilation shalloween is no this is the truth shalloween is you've got all these demons flooding the the world and you dress up as a demon so that they think you're one of them and then you saw then you set about doing what they do, which is robbing people, walking up to them and saying, trick or treat. That's, that's demonic. On the other side of that is the real deal, which is Purim, where we dress up and we do it because we're imitating God, not imitating the devil and his demons. And we walk up to people and we give them things. No questions asked. We don't trick or treat. We treat. <laughs> it says the feast itself then becomes a precept. At no other time in the year are so many good deeds done and so much charity distributed. Let me say that again. At no other time of the Jewish year is so many mitzvahs done and so much tzedakah given out. Then it, then it pour him. It says, at this time, three specific observances are legislated. Feasting, sending portions to one's friends, and giving gifts to the poor. We call the giving of the gifts to friends mishloach manot. You make like a gift basket of stuff. A little wine, some cookies, some whatever, whatever, whatever you want to put in there, and you give it to them. It has to have at least two things of food in it. And you give it to them. 
And then you give stuff to the poor. Why? Do you want to make sure that the poor have what they need in order to celebrate properly? Because the Megillah says that rich and poor alike celebrated so that there should be nobody left sad because they didn't have enough money to celebrate. We're going to get to this in a second, but there should be nobody in our congregation who doesn't come to the Megillah times because they can't afford it. If they can't afford it, then somebody should know about it and so that they could pay their way. That's how you do it at Purim. Nobody should say, why, why don't you go to Megillah? Why don't you go to Megillah times? Not that the, the reading is free. Right? Anybody can come to the reading. But if you're going to the Megillah times, you know, it's a dinner thing. You say, well, I'm not going there because I can't afford it. Really? Who are you? Somebody should pay their way. Feasting and drinking became an integral part of the Purim celebration because the most important event in the Purim story occurred during drinking parties. Vashti was killed at a party. Haman sealed the decree of the Jews at a drinking party. And Haman's downfall came at Esther's drinking party. This is why feasting and drinking was associated with the holiday. Because of the festivals. So it says here, it is forbidden to add any festival to those actually mentioned in the Torah. Therefore, Mordecai refused to legislate that Purim be an actual festival. In what way? He did not make it where you had you were forbidden to work. The aspect of Malacha at a Yom Tov makes it a Yom Tov. If it, so it is a, that's why it's called referred to as a minor festival. Someone say, well, you can't add Hanukkah and Purim. That's like adding to the festivals of the Torah. This is why you need oral Torah. Because you know, now you know the parameters and you realize that that statement is a false statement. It's also Lashon Harah because you're accusing righteous men of doing wicked things. So out of ignorance, you've just condemned the righteous. We ought to be careful about that, by the way. A lot of people do a lot of good things. And we need to be careful about condemning the righteous and that kind of thing. Better just to be silent and learn. It says the observance of sending portions celebrated the victory. In those days, it was customary for soldiers returning from war to send gifts to their friends and relatives in celebration of their survival in battle. This was commemorated with the observance of sending portions. At that time, the danger was equal for all, rich and poor alike. The poor, therefore, this is Mayam I'm reading. He says the poor... Uh, the, the, the danger was for poor and, and rich alike. And this is why we make sure that we send gifts to the poor so that Purim would be a happy day for all, not just for those who could afford it. See, one of the reasons I like to point that out is because people say when you start talking about getting rid of fake holidays, naturally people say, like Shalloween, for instance, well, what about the kids? They love the candy. They love it. They love the dressing up. It's so amazing. I mean, what are you going to do? What about the children? What about the children? It's not about the children. Quit lying to yourself. 
Quit lying about the children. We know now, like we've never known before, that secular society doesn't care anything about kids. We kill them on the operating table. So don't, don't, don't cry, cry crocodile tears over the children. But, on a lighter note, if you are concerned about your children not having candies and treats and a good time and dressing up in costume, we have a solution for you. If you call today, we'll introduce you to Purim, where you can have a godly holiday dressed up in awesome costumes, and you can get treats and games and all kinds of things. And you say, at Christmas time, what about all the cheer and everybody giving everybody gifts? And what about that? Loving, blessing be. We have another holiday for you. Call Purim, act now, and you can be involved in giving gifts in a godly way, not in a Nordic way. Now, I do want to address something. One of the other reasons why we celebrate with feasting and drinking is because our physical life was threatened. I mentioned that before. If you Google about Purim, you are undoubtedly going to find ideas that suggest that at Purim, we are required to become intoxicated. That is not true. Um, that is not true. Now, there are some Jewish sects that believe that, and there's a reason why they believe that, because it is codified in Jewish law. But not all rabbis agreed with that. In fact, there was vehement disagreement to that. Why? Because being intoxicated is a sin, according to the Torah. So you're not allowed to do that. Um, to that end, I want to share a story. It's somewhat of a funny story, actually, but it proves the point that uh, I'll be alluding to. So I just want to say that, that our halakha uh, here at Sarsloma is not to have that halakha. <laughs> and uh, that's going to bring us to another broader point in just a second. How much time have we got? Man, my time is going slow today. It's good. Man, my whole world has slowed down. Mm. Yeah, Baruch Hashem. All right, so it says, and this is in the Tractate Megillah. Man, I just want to tell you something. It is so wonderful to have a congregation that studies Jewish literature. It really is. Because it just, it cleans up the mess. I mean, it's just amazing. But anyway. Um, uh, uh, Talmud Megillah 7b. Abaye bar Avin and Rabbi Hanina bar Avin exchanged their Purim feast with one another. Rabbi said, one is obligated to become intoxicated with wine on Purim until one does not know the difference between cursed as Haman and blessed as Mordecai. Now, the reason it's important to study the Talmud in context and with others and with a rabbi is because you could take that one statement right there and run away with it not realizing that the next statement is going to contradict that statement. Because the Talmud is made up in, in, in many ways by rabbis who are having discussions, and they don't always agree. In this case, you have two rabbis say, we should become intoxicated. And then this story presents itself. Rabbi and Rabbi Zerah had the Purim feast together. They became intoxicated. Rabbi arose and slew Rabbi Zerah. Now, some interpret this to mean that he didn't literally slay him, but he hurt him very badly where his life was potentially in, in jeopardy. But he says, so Rabbi arose and slew Rabbi Zerah. Why? Because he was intoxicated. 
The next day, Rabbah prayed for mercy on Rabbi Zerah's behalf and received him. Excuse me, revived him. The following year, Rabbah asked Rabbi Zerah, let my master come and we'll have a poem feast together. And Rabbi Zerah answered him and says, not every time does a miracle occur. So all agree that the festivities should be accompanied by eating and drinking, drinking primarily wine. And it says here in another place in the Gemara, Pesachim 109a, there is no joy without meat and wine. Therefore, on Purim, Rambam said, how does one fulfill the obligation of the Purim feast? By eating meat and serving a good meal in accordance with one's means. Meat is given to the poor too, so that they should have a Purim festival. Amen. You're poor, you can't afford meat, then we should give you, somebody should give you meat. This means that we have the Megillah reading on Wednesday night. The following day is Purim, and we should, you should decorate your home with a, uh, your, decorate your table and have a nice festival, right? During the day. Cole Bowles says, the statement that a man is obligated to drink on Purim does not mean to become intoxicated. For drunkenness is completely forbidden, and no sin is worse, for it leads to sexual misconduct, spilling of blood, and other transgressions. Now this brings us to a larger point that I want to make <coughs> about Halakha. Um, because getting intoxicated on Purim is actually codified as a law in the, as a mitzvah in Tur and the Shulchan Aruch or Achaim 695. However, the Baal Hamaor, the Ron, and others reject it. And so does the Kolbor and so on. And so does um, Rabbi Ephraim, who was commenting there in the Talmud. We, too, reject it. We reject that halakha. This is an example of the principle that, that Judaism is not an all-or-nothing religion. Some have the idea that if it's written in halakha, it must be done and there's no other option. And that is not true. Because it's written and codified in halakha that one must drink until intoxication on Purim. And yet, prominent leaders and prominent rabbis reject that halakha as invalid and therefore don't follow it. Therefore, when we identify a halakha that is not in accord, in, in our view, with Torah law, notice I said in view with Torah law, not with, and please don't misunderstand what I'm saying here, let me just say this and I'll, I'll come back to it, not in accord with Paul, but accord with Torah not in accord with the idea of grace, meaning I just want to skip whatever I don't like, but in accord with Torah. The reason we reject this halakha about not getting drunk, or getting drunk rather, is because the Torah forbids it. So there's times when we come up to halakha as the leader of the community, there's times when we approach that and I say, we're not going to do that. But here's the reason why. It's not just happenstance, it's not flippant, but here's why. Some people might look at that and go, that's, a, that's hypocritical. How can you do that? You have to take all or nothing. Well, you, that's not Jewish at all. Now, the reason I said Paul is because sometimes you, people 
decide what they're going to do or not do based on the letters of Paul, and that's not appropriate either. Paul is, he, he was a rabbi, he had communities he oversaw, and he was able to speak into their life because they were dealing with issues that we don't deal with. You don't live in Corinth. You do not live in pagan Rome. You can't walk up to the counter at Tom Thumb and go, hear no evil, see no evil. I don't want to ask if it's offered up to an idol. I'm just going to eat and pretend like I don't know. You live in modern day America where you can go to Tom Thumb and say, one with a hexer and one with not. The hexer. You can't say, well, you know, don't ask, don't tell. That doesn't apply because you don't live in first century Rome. And therefore, you can't take first century Roman halakha and apply it to your life. Besides, you don't even know what he's talking about anyway. You're just guessing. You create an entire scenario in your mind, and it's probably wrong. Who's worthy to read the scroll? Let's move on to the next thing, because y'all are tired of that, I can tell. Got a few minutes left here. So who's worthy, worthy to read the scroll? Ma'am Loez writes, Purim is also different than all the other holidays in a very special way. There is a scroll, a special scroll that must be read on this day. Other holidays commemorate well-defined miracles. In the case of Purim, however, the entire story is replete with miracles. God is intertwined in the whole thing. You can't just pick out one thing. So therefore, we read the whole story. It was a miracle of coincidences and poetic justices from beginning to end. This can only be appreciated, he writes, when the entire story is read. When I read that statement that there is a special scroll that is read, and it goes on to talk about how the scroll from the Megillah has to be made in the same way the Torah scroll is. So now you have the Torah scroll that has to be parchment and scored with a thorn and written by hand, all this kind of stuff. And the Megillah scroll is the only scroll, it's the only book that has to be written like that. So you have two Mashiachs. And so you read this and you're thinking, wait a minute, Esther is a type of Mashiach. And so I was reminded of this passage in the book of the Revelation in chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. And I saw on the right hand of the one seated upon the throne a scroll written on both the front and the back, sealed with seven seals. And I also saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and to break its seals? No one is in, in heaven on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look upon it. Note it says no one in heaven or on the earth. No, in other words, no created being, no human Messiah. No created being, no human Messiah. No one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look in. That means you've got to have somebody who's outside creation who has the ability to come in and read it. So it says, I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or look about it. What are you talking about? He's in Shemayim. Do you realize who's there? Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, David, Solomon. I mean, everybody who's anybody is there and not nobody is worthy to open it. Moses, Mordecai, Esther, who can read it? Nobody. Why? You have to have the one who is the, the source of creation. He says here, then one of the elders 
tells me, stop weeping. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed, and he is worthy to open the scroll and its seven seals. When I read that, I wondered, I always looked at the scroll as the Torah. Could it be that the scroll they're talking about is the scroll of the hidden one, Esther, which means hidden? The only one that has, it's worthy to read the scroll of the concealed is the one who was concealed and is now revealed. Maybe he was the one. And finally this, peace and truth. It says in verse 30, with words of peace and truth. It says, according to the Talmud, the Torah is called truth. And the Megillah is compared to it in its ritual requirements. This shows that the Megillah must be written with ruled lines like the true essence of the Torah, Megillah 16b. Just as the Torah is open to interpretation, that is to uncover its deeper meanings, so the Megillah is also open to interpretation. Also, Esther began her letter to the 127 provinces with greetings of peace as one usually begins a letter. At the same time, she admonished the Jews to live a life of shalom and peace and truth and thus ensures the rebuilding of the temple. So Esther, living like Esther, living in this dynamic, is what leads to the building of the temple. But in the book of Yochanan, chapter 17 and verse 17, Yeshua says, as he's praying, he says, Hashem, sanctify them in truth. You know, we say, you know, we say, who sanctifies us by his word and commands us to. He's saying, wait a minute, I thought I was sanctified by Yeshua. Uh, now you're saying I'm sanctified by his word. Which is it? The answer is yes. He is the word. And Yeshua says, sanctify them in truth. That is, the Amplified says, set them apart for your purposes and make them holy. And in case we're wondering, well, what is truth? He says, your word is truth. Your word is truth. My friends, let me tell you something. There's only one way to be set apart and made holy, and that's by being sanctified by God's word. And God's word is not, let me tell you what it is. It's the Torah. It's the scriptures. It's the Tanakh. Psalm 119, 142 says, your justice is righteousness forever, and your Torah is truth. At the end of our reading of the Megillah, and our study of this important book, we come to the end and think, what does this say to us? And the answer is, it's time for us to recapture, to take hold again of our Torah of truth to recapture that essence of the spirit of Esther and Mordecai, which was we want to come back to God. We want to take upon ourselves the mitzvahs, not because we're being forced to, but because we want to. That's the bride God wants. He wants the bride who's willing to sign the ketubah because she loves him. Amen. But what do we know? What do we know?